0: Good afternoon, London. Happy Friday. Can I say that any more enthusiastically? Woohoo! <laughs> it's the end of your work week. We are nearly there. The finish line is in sight. Way to go. You did it. You made it through. I'm very proud of all of you. It's very good. <laughs> it's Jess Brady here. I am your guest host this week. Mike Stubbs is on vacation and he will be back with you on Monday. Yeah, he's had a couple weeks off. He's had some good r and I hope. I hope. Hardworking gentleman, and uh, he deserves some time off, as we all do from time to time. So yeah, he'll be back with you on Monday. But for the next two hours, you have me. <laughs> Busy show coming up. Lots to talk about. Lots to go over, as uh, every day has been. The time it flies. Every single time I'm in this side of the of the booth, sitting here chatting with all of you. I've said it before earlier this week that it's been uh, it's always an interesting time, uh, and I very ha- much have enjoyed filling in on the talk show side because usually I'm in the mornings. I am delivering the news, uh, w- co-anchoring with uh, Jake Jeffrey, and that's when I get to like tell you what's happening. But when I get to fill in for Mike, then I get to talk about what I think. When ah, perhaps that's a bit scary. I get to share my thoughts. <laughs> Either way, it's been very, very fun for me to do this and uh, it's been a good time. I've really appreciated the opportunity to chat with all of you and it's it's been a good time. So one of the biggest stories that we've talked about this week, I feel like this will be, I think the third time that I will have talked about it, uh, Amber Alerts. Yeah, we didn't have another one overnight, so that's, that's good uh, because it means that no one was in harm's way that they needed an Amber Alert for them, so thank goodness for that. But our colleagues within the global news radio network, specifically Trex uh, on The Shift. He broadcasts. We, we run him overnight here in London. He broadcasts out of Vancouver. And he was talking about the Amber Alert system uh, during his show early this morning, late last night. And he had a very different kind of guest on to talk about Amber Alerts and how important they are. Zach Miller was the guest. Now, in 2006, Zach was kidnapped by a stranger as a 10-year-old in Saskatchewan. 24 hours after he went missing, police decided to issue the first Amber Alert in Saskatchewan's history. So Drex spoke to Zach, uh, who is, you know, quite rightly angry about people calling 911 to complain about Amber Alerts. And we're going to play you uh, part of their conversation uh, that Drex had with
1: Zach. Zach is almost 23, and in five days, it'll be the 13th anniversary since he was abducted by Peter Whitmore. And he told Global News earlier today that if it wasn't for certain individuals spotting the vehicle uh, mentioned in an Amber Alert, he wouldn't be here. I spoke to Zach earlier today from from his home in Saskatchewan where he says he is angry about hearing that people call 911 to complain about Amber Alerts.
2: I can't stress how angry that makes me, to be honest. To see people angry about the Amber Alert system really, really gets under my skin. That shows me that people aren't putting things in order that they should. Because an Amber Alert is when a child's in known harm's way. And so when an Amber Alert comes out, there's a child in danger. At what point you not understand that you need to drop everything you're doing and pay attention to that system anytime there's natural disaster anything in that circumstance people stop what they're doing why is not this happening with children because whenever i'm out talking to school groups stuff like that i'm out working with the opp rcmp schools different child advocacy groups my biggest thing is on children is they're the next generation they're the next lawyers doctors Ministers of this country, and we're doing a really terrible job right now after taxing
1: them. There's a move in Ontario, uh, a petition anyway, to uh, have people getting, uh, you know, receive fines if they start calling 911 to complain about Amber alerts. Now, the reason the police don't generally fine people for abusing 911 is because it may turn people off from calling 911. But w- what do you think of the idea of actually punishing people who abuse the 911 system because of Amber alerts?
2: Well, it's the same thing uh, with people calling uh, in false fire calls. I'm a volunteer firefighter up here in Saskatchewan, and we get false fire calls all the time, mm. and it's a waste of our time and resources. It's the same thing with an Amber Alert. Like when people start phoning in complaining about this, there needs to be actions done. Mm. This this can't be happening. We can't not. We can't be having. The system pushed under and pushed under time and again when it's needed at that time, when it's the most critical for that child.
1: You have, you have said multiple times in multiple interviews that if it wasn't for an Amber Alert that you wouldn't be here today. That's pretty profound stuff for people to read, isn't it?
3: It is.
2: If it wasn't for the Amber Alert going out and the information it held within that Amber Alert, I wouldn't be here. I would be here to be able to be the voice for the people who can't speak out for the children who are still missing.
0: So that was Zach Miller speaking with uh, our colleague on the Global News Radio Network, Drex, for uh, his show, The Shift with Drex, which plays here on 980 CFPL overnight, in the overnight hours before the news wheel starts in the morning with me and Jake. But yeah, it's uh, it really hits home when you hear the real-world consequences of an Amber Alert. You heard Zach Miller talking about it. He was abducted when he was a child. And the reason why he was able to go home to his family after that horrendous experience was because an Amber Alert helped members of the public track him down. They spotted clues. The descriptions that were sent out helped bring him home. So, you know, I, I, I'm fine with having a discussion if people want to say maybe this system could be tweaked to make it more effective or whatever. Yes, let's, let's have an open and frank discussion about that. Sure, I have no problem with that. But what I object to and will always object to is people calling 911 to complain about this. No. That is neither the time nor the place to do such a thing. Like, really and truly, we have to get our priorities straightened out here. If, if you think that calling 911 is a good option to fix this problem, I don't know what to tell you. Really and truly. I, I mean, perhaps I could blame it on <laughs> someone being, you know, uh, bleary-eyed from being woken up from the alert. And maybe that's why their decision making is so poor <laughs> that they think, hey, let's call nine one and sound off to a completely innocent operator who's just trying to do their job and connect people with emergency services that they actually need. Maybe that's it. We could we could not give them any slack, but not not an excuse but an explanation for that type of uh bad decision making. Maybe that's it. They're just discombobulated and they think, I'm gonna call. No. Just don't do that. Just take a second, breathe a little. You're fine. You don't need to call nine one one to do this. No. But again, like I've had uh, comments online. There was a, a pretty good discussion on Twitter about about this uh, topic a couple of days ago. And someone wrote in and said, you know, like we could look at a different type of system for these alerts. Sure. Yeah. Like I'm totally fine with those types of discussions. That's that's cool with me. No problem whatsoever. Let's have a responsible discussion. In an appropriate manner where we are not taxing the resources of our emergency systems, because if people think that they're going to make an impact doing things the way that they have been by calling emergency officials and like, nah, that's that's not helpful. That's not going to get you anything other than ridicule. And quite rightly so, like it's just ridiculous. And if you were wondering how many people have now signed the petition to have fines instituted for people who call 911 to complain about Amber Alerts. I have just brought it up in front of me on my computer. And we are sitting at 94,669 signatures. Oh, we just jumped up to 71 as I was talking. 72, 73. Wow. So, like, this is still a very popular issue. Lots of people are taking this to heart, as they should. Because I feel like most people would be fine, like I am, with having a discussion about how you tweak the system, how you make it more effective. But just don't don't be a don't be that person who calls 911 for a non-emergency. Come on. Just think about it. Don't be selfish. Think for a moment. You cannot like these alerts. That's fine. You cannot like them, but just don't do something stupid that's going to impact the system in how an emergency system where, as I said yesterday, the only thing 911 should be used for in relation to an Amber Alert is if you're calling in with information to help bring that child home. Okay. All right. I know. Listeners are probably like, Jess, you've talked about this three <laughs> times this week. I'm like, yeah, I have. And I'm not sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Because people are still calling to complain about it. And it's like, seriously. So I hope that the powers that be get on this fine idea from uh, Dahlia Monicelli, who we talked to yesterday, who was uh, quite quite kind and gracious in, in coming on to chat with me about this, because it's just, you know, if, if you can't police people's ridiculous impulses just by, you know, common decency and them policing themselves, sometimes you have to hit them where it hurts. And that's quite often their wallets. And so I guess that's what we're moving towards. Sad that we have to take that kind of a measure. But apparently that's what we have to do. Unfortunate. But there you have it. Okay. So this is the end of my uh, my week of rants about the Amber Alert complainers. That's it. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back on London Live on 980 CFPL. And when we do come back, we're going to talk about a shortage, a food shortage of a kind. Do you like avocados? If you do, and if you like guacamole and any other great uh, foods that you can make with them, this next topic is for you because apparently there's a shortage right now. Yeah. And so that's making your, I guess, avocado budget go through the roof if you're a frequent buyer. Yeah. Because they are, those those little guys are a lot more pricey right now because of this shortage. We're going to talk about that, why that's the case, and uh, what's, what's going on with the whole situation uh, coming up on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the Friday Afternoon Edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for the week. Really, for like an hour and 40 more minutes. (laughs) Because it's Friday. That's right. Your weekend is quickly approaching. The end is in sight. It's going to be great. Now, do you have plans over the weekend? What are you up to? I am uh, going to a wedding tomorrow for two of my good friends. Talk more about that in a little bit. But usually, weekends are a time for get-togethers, parties. Maybe you have a potluck. Maybe people bring their favorite dishes over, you know, if you're hanging out. Do you like avocados? Do you like guacamole, which is made with avocados? If you do, I have bad news. And perhaps you've already realized this. If you are, uh, you know, a frequent avocado consumer, perhaps you like avocado toast. Well, <laughs> avocados are in short supply, my friends. That's, yeah, uh, so much so that it appears it's an avocado crisis. Yeah. In North America. This is according to experts who know about these things. Mm hmm. So. Because of that crisis situation, when you go to the grocery store or wherever you get your avocados from, wherever you've sourced them, they are much more expensive these days than they used to be. Yeah. So why is that the case? Well, joining me on the line right now to talk about this is Sylvain Lebois. He's the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Sylvain, thanks so much for taking some time to chat with us this afternoon. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So we have uh, quite an interesting story that's uh, come up in the last uh, little while that's rising to prominence. People are figuring out that it is much more expensive to buy avocados. So those of us who enjoy guacamole and using it in other, uh, in other dishes, uh, it's a bit of sticker shock. What's going on with that?
4: Well, it's been going on for a while. Uh, we do uh, enjoy our avocados, uh, of course, uh, for for events. Uh, we go to our favorite restaurants and we're often served with uh, guacamole, which is really the one thing that uh, that w- we use uh, avocados for most of the time, but uh, over the last little while, uh, prices have gone up significantly as a result of uh, of uh, well, Mexico Supplies 95% of all the avocados we eat, and they've had some issues with uh, with harvest yields. Uh, Have been as uh, as robust, and there's a lot of tension between uh, Mexico and and the U.S. Uh, at the border these days, as we all know, which really has um, affected uh, prices. Uh, there's there's less uh, there's there's few avocados on the market, and that's why we're paying a little bit more
0: yeah so it seems like it's a straight up issue of supply and demand, and the supply has been impacted for those reasons and now <laughs> the demand is it can't be met
4: yeah i know exactly now we uh, we're dealing with a, with a so called salary crisis over the winter uh prices uh almost tripled uh, for a while for three months that 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 was due to uh to inclement weather in uh, in California this time around it's it's more about uh more about the geopolitics, I guess, more than anything else. And uh, and do remember, in Mexico in particular, there are some issues around uh, corruption. Uh, there, there, there's been some reports uh, suggesting that uh, most of the production uh, in Mexico, avocado production, is affected by Drug cartels, <laughs> and so uh, and some reports I suggest it's ninety percent of all production. So it's quite a lot, and we actually buy uh, avocados from 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 these cartels. Or if whenever we buy uh, avocados, we actually are supporting. Drug cartels in Mexico, so it's it's really a, a, a problematic uh, for for uh, Canadian importers and of course uh, farmers in Mexico.
0: Wow, that is something that I had never heard before and had never even considered. That's that's nuts. I mean, I know that people are uh, you know they love their avocados, that's for sure, but I never had thought of it as a as being a part of of, of uh, you know yeah. organized crime. That's it's nuts.
4: Very, it's very different than uh, say cauliflower or. Because uh, with avocados, you are looking at a multifaceted problem, and uh, that goes way beyond just you know a supply and demand sort of thing.
0: Wow, that's that's nuts. I'm still floored by that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> seriously. Yeah. That's crazy. So I guess then moving forward, I mean, with the ethical uh, questions aside uh, about whether maybe we should be buying avocados and, and the byproducts of such as we move forward. But uh, when do you anticipate or do you anticipate that the prices will, will drop a little bit?
4: So uh, there, there's been some reports, encouraging reports uh, coming out in Mexico, suggesting that uh, harvest should be good in the fall. Um, in the summertime, uh, and we 're in the middle of summer right now. Uh, production is not uh, is not uh, high in mexico that 's why we are expecting prices to remain high until probably September uh, at the very least. But coming October in October, we are expecting prices to drop because uh, there'll be more supply coming from from Mexico. But again, I mean all of that production is uh, is tainted i guess by um, by uh, criminal activity so this is something that perhaps people should be thinking about but of course if you are to switch and, and go somewhere else to buy avocados you're likely to pay more for it so um the day uh, when when we we spend a uh, dollar per avocado uh, may be coming to an end right now it's tough to actually find any avocados um, south of $2 per unit, unless you buy in bulk. But if you do buy in bulk, uh, chances are Avocados will be very small, very tiny.
0: Wow, that's that's wild. Yeah, and it's it's funny because like when I go to the store, usually I'm not buying uh, the avocados themselves. I'm a bit lazy. <laughs> I like my guac pre-made for me. So the price for that, I always expect. Yeah, I'm gonna pay a little bit more because they're they're doing the work for me and it's it's processed and I, all I have to do is take the lid off and enjoy. <laughs> um, did
4: you but- did you check the price of uh, pre-made? guacamole these days?
0: Well, it's funny. I I got a little bit on sale the other day. (laughs) I was actually at the store, but it's a small amount and it's still pretty expensive.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we did a survey yesterday uh, for uh, a pound of guacamole, pre-made guacamole. It's anywhere between $8 to $9 for 454 grams, so about a pound. That is unusually high. Typically, you should expect to pay Five or sixty dollars at most.
0: Wow, that's that's wild. Yeah. So we're seeing it really. Go so enjoy
4: it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> go stock up. It was that Metro, <laughs> the little suburb. Yeah, exactly.
4: <laughs> well, it's that different uh, different to suppliers, but uh, I would say generally speaking, uh, paying nine dollars for a pound of guacamole is not unusual right now.
0: Wow, that's wild. Well, we'll be very interested to see how this kind of uh, goes on uh, through the rest of the summer and into the fall, and hopefully those prices fall. But as you said, some ethical considerations there that, uh, you know, maybe not a lot of people knew, but I know I certainly didn't. So I, uh, I, I'm glad to have been enlightened now, and I, I thank you for it. My pleasure. Now you have a good rest of your day and enjoy the summer weather, and, and good luck finding some avocados.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. You take care.
0: You too. So there you have it. Avocados are in hot supply or hot demand, I should say, and in short supply. Watch out for your weekend plans. If you were planning on making guac, oh, you might want to rethink that. Otherwise, you might be paying a premium. Apparently, some places in Mexico City, I'm reading an article from a CTV National on this. Um, some restaurants in Mexico City have started serving fake guacamole using a Mexican squash instead of an avocado. So maybe you can look up some alternative recipes. (laughs) They probably won't taste the same as uh, your avocado goodness, but it might come through in a pinch if you need to. We'll see. Good luck out there if you are (laughs) searching for avocado alternatives to kind of beat this uh, avocado crunch. It's a crisis in the avocado market. My goodness. We need to take a quick break for news. When we come back, we'll be talking about trends that were not necessarily started by baby boomers, uh, but you know, certainly have been you know uh, very prominent over the last oh gosh how many decades uh, you know ways of life of doing things that are now changing quite dramatically. We're going to have a chat with someone who's an expert on this, a sociologist, and that's coming up after the news on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host this week. Before the break, I told you that we were going to talk about a little bit about baby boomers. And maybe some trends that they started or, you know, just have been obviously uh, very much the way of doing things in life while the baby boomers have been around and the dominant generation. Because there's a lot of them out there. Well, some of these trends are changing. I mean, time goes on. Things change. Our ways of doing things in life and society, they evolve. They change. There's this interesting uh, post on a wealth of common sense, and it's sort of like a financial—I um, don't necessarily want to call it a blog, but it is actually it is a blog, and it's uh, you know run by an investor, and he's got a podcast with one of his well, one of his uh, friends, I suppose, and so they went through in one of their one of their podcast episodes talking about um, items and things uh, that are changing. Because of the change in generations, yeah. So, like things like going to the movies or voicemails, uh, malls, cable, that sort of thing. So there are things that are are kind of like more uh, minor, but there are other things that are perhaps a little bit larger. Our day to day lives, aspects of our lives that um, have ways that we do things that rose to prominence with the baby boomers that are on their way to changing or just completely dying out entirely. It's very interesting to think about this from a sociological perspective. So on the line with me now is Diane Pacom. She's a professor emerita from the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and she has some thoughts on this. Diane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me this afternoon. I appreciate it.
5: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: Well, Diane, there are lots of conversations all the time about millennials and all of the things that we're doing differently. Uh, But now we're starting to, you know, talk a little bit about perhaps trends that baby boomers started that will no longer continue uh, as as, you know, different generations come up and and, in prominence. So uh, what was some of your insight into that or is there anything specific that comes to mind for you that won't be uh, maybe as prominent of a trend as it used to be?
5: Many things. Uh, We have changed uh, tremendously the culture. When I say we, as the baby boomers, I'm a baby boomer. And as a sociologist, I was very interested in how uh, the baby boomers changed uh, the culture and the mores and the traditions of uh, North American societies. Because The baby boomers were born after the war, and uh, there was a huge amount of uh, people that were born between 1945 and 1965 in North America, but in Europe. But in Europe it was a little bit later because of the effects of the war. Uh, So they have um, uh, modified the way that uh, we relate to life, to leisure, to work, to culture, to music, to sex. So their legacy is huge. So I don't think that... uh, the trends that they have set will disappear. Uh, but there are some of the things that were typical to their generation. There is one specific, actually two specific things I would like to discuss with you. The first one is money. Uh, I've been noticing that uh, surely and uh, slowly but surely uh, money is disappearing. Uh, For instance, twice in Toronto, I went to uh, to a a mall and I wanted to pay with money, and the people refused to take my money. Said, "We don't take money." So, as a sociologist, I started reflecting on the consequences of this this new thing, because throughout history, from the beginnings of time to today, there was always uh, a mediator, uh, something mediating some object being uh, uh, pieces of stone or being uh, coins or being something material, concrete, that was mediating uh, the, the the process between me desiring to buy something and buying it. Uh, and this is disappearing, and for me this is tremendous, because it's... Changing completely the economy, and also uh, uh, the rapport of the younger generations with with consumerism. Uh, Now, any time during the day, from their computer, they can order things without necessarily having that that reflection on the the, the, the how how much money it is. So they 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 spend much more. And uh, as a professor, I noticed. Uh, quite recently that uh, when my assistant was trying to send to the students some photocopies of of a text or something, the young people, they they were saying, we don't have money. Do you take credit, even to to one of their fellow students? So this is changing tremendously the world. The other thing which is very important is um, um, the the, the rapport with time and space. Younger people, they're not as patient, because for them, uh, if they need anything, they can acquire it immediately. Uh, If they see something on the uh, Internet that they like, they're going to get it immediately. So uh, these these are fundamental practices that we had throughout the centuries that are disappearing. There are many other more, but these, for me, are the most essential.
0: That's very interesting. And especially to your point about uh, physical money and currency, yeah. that is, that's that's yeah. something that we've talked about in, in our own newsroom, different trends, different uh, stores. Good. Yeah, yeah, about uh, like yeah. fast food places too. Uh, there was yeah. um, a, a local place that was uh, toying with that idea of, of not accepting uh, actual physical currency anymore. Yeah. And uh, for those of us who are, are pretty much uh, reliant on our debit cards or our, our credit cards, it's, you yeah. know, I very rarely have actual, actual cash on me, uh, so oh, yes. it's not a big impact for me, but there are other social consequences to that, if you, if you think of people who uh, perhaps are of lower income and they don't have, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're more cash-based.
5: Yes, no, I personally, uh, as a rule, I don't use my credit card unless it's for a very big amount. I'd rather have the control of my money, because once you have the plastic, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the plastic as a means of paying, you know, your, your whatever you're buying, then you forget, you forget that the, the whatever you're buying has uh, has a, a price, you know. It's just so immediate, and, and, and that scares me, honestly. And also the fact that I couldn't believe my eyes, I, I, I bought something and then I, I chose something in that store and then I went to the cash and uh, the young person the cashier she looked at me like if I was a a, someone coming from another planet and says, but we don't take money I've never had heard this before ever I was shocked and I I, I, the same day I went to some other stores all of them it's it's a very highbrow mall uh, downtown Toronto they none of them was taking money And I was stranded. I I literally had to go somewhere else to buy whatever I needed. You know, the other ones, thank God, they were taking money.
0: That is startling to me that there would be an outright refusal, especially in such an urban centre as Toronto. It's it's very surprising.
5: Yes, and it's against all the principles of uh, doing business. Because, uh, I mean, a business person, uh, they'll do anything in, in order to sell you. But for them, and there was something snotty about it, something a little bit uh, um, demeaning, the way they spoke to me. Obviously, I'm an older person. I'm not super old, but I'm a baby boomer, you know. So, and then the way they treated me, it was like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, there is something else I want to add. So the, the, the third store, because I said, might as well do some sociological research, uh, I asked the young woman, I said, "Why aren't you taking money?" And you know what she told me? she said, "Because money is dirty." No way. I swear. And immediately, I mean, I've given many, many interviews on this topic, and I and I and I spoke about it because I do lots of public speaking and so on, mostly in French though. And I couldn't believe my eyes. This is like it flies against all the all the culture, you know, the capitalist culture. Where I remember sometimes back then when I was very young, literally the the, the, the people with the, I was buying something and they were kissing the coin, they were kissing the paper, you know, because money was sacred. And now this young woman. She literally, again, in a little bit of a condescending way, she tells me, "Money is dirty," you know.
3: Mm-hmm. So this,
5: for me, is a huge, huge change uh, in our vision of life, in our vision of how we do commerce, in the, way of the of our rapport with objects. But obviously, there is much more because this generation also. I mean, they they literally live in the digital age. And I wrote an article recently uh, specifying uh, the differences between the generations when it comes to uh, uh, what they call digital tourists as opposed to digital natives. So people who are in the, I mean, the baby boomers obviously are more digital tourists in the sense that they get in and out of the digital world. Their kids, though, fell into it. So that creates also something which is quite unique in the history of uh, the intergenerational relations but specifically uh, I don't think we've seen anything like this since the uh, the uh, industrial revolution yeah. uh, so there are lots of things that are happening right now which is not necessarily only the legacy of the baby boomers but the the, the whole uh, mental and physical and the, you know, vision of the of the baby boomers as opposed to the younger generation.
0: It's fascinating, and I'm I'm yeah. so grateful to you, Diane, for coming on to chat about this today. It's it's thank been a pleasure so to uh, get some of your insight and to talk I about kind that. of the the ripple effect of these changes that we're seeing. And, and Thank you so much for your time.
5: Thank you so much.
0: That was Diane Pacome, a professor emerita with the Faculty of Social Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Talking about uh, changing times and methods of doing things. Systems that were once well entrenched and established, especially with the baby boomer generation, now are changing. Yeah, discussions about cash are very interesting because I, as I mentioned, I, I generally don't carry cash. Not often. Like if I'm going on a trip somewhere, yeah, I try and make sure that I've got some with me uh, just in case like you're going somewhere and they don't have a debit machine or they don't take credit cards or something like that. So, you know, because cash still, in my mind, is still like the ultimate accepted everywhere. What is what is that American Express? That's their slogan, accepted everywhere. Well, sometimes not. Sometimes not. Sometimes they can only take cash. But to be outright refused, it's very surprising to me. I just I, I couldn't believe that when uh, Diane mentioned that she was turned away from paying with cash, I was like, "Wow, that's something else." Very surprising to me, but yeah, I feel like the older generation—not that much older, but like you know, baby boomers—they uh, always have cash on them. My parents always have cash, always, 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 always. But yeah, it's it's interesting, and with cash, it is easier uh, to keep tabs on uh, how much you've spent. Also, I feel like if you have a $20 bill, you're less likely to want to uh, (laughs) break it and to, you know what I mean? Like, because once I have the $20 bill, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. I don't want to break it. No, I do not. I want to keep that money. So maybe it makes you a little bit more uh, hesitant to spend on something that you don't really need. Of course, if you need to spend something, then for sure do it. But yeah, it's interesting. It's very telling, I suppose, into how we've changed as a society, how our how our methods of 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 doing business and interacting with each other, how they're changing. And the idea that cash is dirty. Interesting. I mean, I know that there have been like studies in terms of, you know, looking at how many germs are on a <laughs> on a on a five dollar bill. I personally do not want to know the results of that study because I want to sleep at night <laughs> and I'm a little bit anxious about things like that. So I would choose to, to not look at it. Now we've got a call from Bob here in London. Bob, what are your thoughts on this? Are are we talking baby boomer trends or, or the cash thing?
3: Yeah, we are. Yeah. I'd like to make a comment on that. I thought to, to your guest, it was a very interesting uh, conversation you had with her. And, uh, I think she's in a lot of aspects of that because, uh, If you look at today, I think the younger generation coming up, and uh, I'm kind of a sort of a late baby boomer, where it seems to be that uh, they're going to strip the wealth from a whole generation or so going into the future, because now you're going to be just dealing in digital ones and zeros, right? You're not going to have any tangible wealth in your hands, you know, cash or coins or what have you. You know, it went from gold and silver, Right? it used to. Our money used to be backed up like that, mm-hmm. and it's not now. So uh, really the only wealth anybody has while you're on this planet is something tangible. Like you have to own land or you have to have in your portfolio some gold and silver. Because gold and silver, especially gold, right, if there was ever some kind of a huge economic uh, collapse – you can go anywhere in the world and still barter with with gold. It's mm-hmm. going to be accepted. Matter of fact, in the United States right now, there's about I think uh, Utah was the first state, but they passed a law there where you can go to Utah right now and you can lay down gold and silver bars and you can buy anything you want. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a law that's passed. So uh, that in itself, worldly, you know, is accepted. So when I see them stripping cash completely from uh, from our economic system. It just—it's—it's it's a warning flag for me. You have to have something tangible uh, when things go really bad, and—and—and uh, and, and they will again, you know, because no fiat currency has ever withstood the—the the test, the test of time, and uh, the American dollar has been the uh, world standard, right, uh, for what over a hundred years now. Everything's based on the American dollar, and if something should ever happen where there is a huge economic collapse, and people don't even have access to any currency. You're left out with nothing and if you have nothing to barter with to get food or what have you, you're done. so I, I think it's a dangerous area that we're heading into uh, for this future generation. Um, they you know maybe they'll realize it one day that uh, you know t- wealth is based on tangible things hmm. and not digital ones and zeros because nobody's going to take care of you <laughs> if, if you need money and you don't have some f- asset to trade with and barter with right Yeah no, it's true. And you know what's interesting too is uh, I've been keeping kind of uh, on top of this, and in India, uh, particular India, they they really value gold. And everybody, many many families, what they do every time they get a paycheck, you can walk into a you can walk into a, a store and buy gold, and you can buy it in and these little denominations of an eighth of an ounce. So every week in India, people put money towards gold. And I know there's a tradition in India when you get married, the two families bring out their riches, which is they lay their gold on the, uh, for display to show what each family has and what you know what each family and each person is getting into, and so it they still have that kind of value on that. So I think here in North America, um, I know a lot of people, including myself, who I still put in my portfolio, gold and silver, Mm -hmm. because it's, a you know, even jewels or anything like that, diamonds or what have you, right, because it's always worth something somewhere in the world. So, yeah, it's a little concerning, and your guest made great points, I thought, which is talking about the trends that we're going towards here Mm -hmm. in the future, and I don't think it's very safe uh, for when people who are millennials now, 25 or 30 or what have you, and when they get to be 50 and 60, like the uh, baby boomers, what are they really going to have yeah. in terms of wealth, like really good wealth? You have to own something, a house, land, something, for your even for when you get older. So you can use that as an asset if you have to, to, you know, to live and survive. Yeah. I'm, elderly leaders,
0: yeah. yeah, no, it's, and I very much appreciate the call, Bob. It's, uh, it's great to get your thoughts on it. Thanks very much for the call.
3: Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good weekend.
0: You too. Take care. Yeah, you too. Yeah, it's uh it, yeah, and and millennials Bob makes a great point that uh having assets to fall back on like physical assets like property and what have you that's yeah, great. Millennials do though face a lot of challenges in accumulating that which is uh a whole other kettle of fish. But I mean Bob's right. I mean, if you can if you can have property, if you can have a house, fantastic. But yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of other set of uh I guess uh, issues that prevent a lot of millennials from being able to achieve those goals. And some of which we talked about earlier this week when talking about uh, millennials who are still looking for a partner romantic uh, wise. And, you know, they look at at their partner's ability to possibly have the same housing goals as them, property goals, things like that. Because we are very anxious as a generation about not being able to afford that. It's interesting. Everything is connected. Everything is connected. On that note. We need to take a quick break to disconnect from this topic before we move to the next. That's coming up on 980 CFPL on London Live. Welcome back. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for the week on London Live. Before we uh, go into news, I saw this story this morning. And it's a video showing a toddler being swept away on an airport conveyor belt. Yeah not good. I'll read you this. A toddler was injured after he climbed onto a baggage conveyor belt and was swept away into a bag room at an Atlanta airport. The boy's mother told WSB TV Atlanta that the child walked away while she was printing a boarding pass at a Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport kiosk on Monday. He climbed onto the conveyor belt and rode it for about five minutes. She said, he went a long, went on a long ride. I couldn't even catch up. She said I wanted to jump in and try to get him, but they didn't allow me to. The boy suffered injuries to his arms and hands and was taken to a local hospital. Yeah, not good. So the little guy's going to be okay by the sounds of it, but certainly scary. I've been to uh, Hartsfield Jackson International Airport in Atlanta. That is a big airport, and I can only imagine like it's so busy. It's technically the busiest airport in the world, and it's because Delta—that's its hub. So Delta is massive, obviously a massive airline, and all of its its main hubs. That that is its main hub, I should say. And so tons of flights go through there, and technically it is the busiest. So they even have like a like a little subway system within that airport because when I would go to visit uh, my folks when they winter in Florida, I would have to transfer f- through. Uh, Atlanta's airport there. And <laughs> being the uh, uh, type of person who always wants to, you know, be prepared for things, I had heard that this airport had like a crazy reputation for being so busy and you can get lost very easily. So I like Googled it ahead of time. I watched like some YouTube videos showing like how their their internal um, subway system sort of thing works. And it is actually quite easy to get around So long as you like, you know, I mean, if you ask a question, the staff there are fantastic. They will help you. (laughs) They'll like direct you in which ways to go. And people are pretty friendly in general. Uh, But yeah, big airport. So I can only imagine the panic that would have ensued with having this poor little, poor little kid swept into a baggage area. It's it's scary, right? So the airline, Spirit Airlines, was the one that was involved. Uh, it said the unattended child passed by a section of our ticket counter that was not staffed or open at the time. And the child was able to access a back baggage area via a bag belt and sustained some injuries. So the airline says it's working with the airport and TSA to ensure all protocol was followed and, you know, hopefully make sure that never happens again. Because we've all laughed at the idea, perhaps, of sitting on the baggage carousel going around and around and around. But uh, not so funny when a little little kid gets hurt. So we're glad that he's going to be okay, most likely. Everything sounds like it'll be fine. But Toddler went on quite the adventure at uh, the Atlanta airport. Anyway, we need to take an adventure now and go and find out what's going on in the, in the world with the news. And that's happening with Matthew Trevithick right now on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the program. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for this week's shows of London Live. Mike is on vacation. He's back on Monday, though. So that's really good. You will have your regularly scheduled fantastic host, Mike Stubbs. He'll be back with you. So it's been a busy show so far. Yes, we are into the last hour. I I say it every day. (laughs) As if on cue, I'll say it right now. Every day, these shows fly by. And you talk to so many great people and you hear from uh, all the great listeners. Bob called in a little earlier. I appreciate that. It's always great to hear from you, and I will be asking for your calls once again a little bit later, and I'll I'll tee this up a little bit now, just to get people, have them have some time to think about this and ponder it. So I've mentioned that two of my good friends are getting married tomorrow, Sammy and Casey. I've known them for a long, long time. Casey I've known since, oh gosh, we were in elementary school Sammy, his lovely fiance, is uh, I've known her, well, since they got together. So it's been a number of years now for that. And they are just great people and they're getting hitched tomorrow. Very excited. So I want to know, don't call now. Don't call now. Wait, I'll tell you when. But I want to get your best uh, pieces of advice for marriage. And then this way perhaps i will impart a few of of uh, these fantastic suggestions to them uh later on in the day tomorrow after they're married my best friend and i we are uh co mc's of this shindig it's going to be fun we're very excited for it it'll be a lot of it'll be a good time i am sure of it so that's that's your call to action london listeners in a little while in a little bit not right now uh call in with your best pieces of advice for marriage yeah okay so that's coming up in a little bit. But, but first, <laughs> we are going to talk about this really neat initiative that the, that's happening over at Museum London. Now, some of you may know that Museum London does history walks. Yes. Yes, they do. They run right through July and August. And there are uh, different themes. Uh, they have one that's called Bats, Beans and Bridges. Uh, that's coming up later on in August. Uh, there's Cottages to Castles. So these each one has like a couple of editions. So if you can't catch it the first time around, they they have a second one. But the one that we are talking about today is very important. And it's focusing on London's Indigenous history. And it's, it's really neat. It sounds like it's going to be uh, just a fantastic uh, learning opportunity. So the first session is tomorrow. And they have two uh, that are running tomorrow. But I wanted to talk uh, with the person who's running these walks to find out a a little bit more about them. So joining me on the line is Anishinaabe educator, journalist and leader of the walks, Sarah May Chitty. Sarah May, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about these tours that are running on the weekend. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what will happen when people show up on Saturday.
6: The walk begins at the museum on Saturday, um, and we'll be examining a Kent Monkman painting. And then I will take you down to the park, like at the Forks of the Thames, then back up to downtown where there's a couple stops, and then we end up at, at Losa on Richmond Street.
0: So it is a, a nice, con- like, it's, it's it's a good a good amount of time. I think each walk is about, what, 90 minutes or so? Yes, you got it. Yeah, and so you are really going to get a, an interesting view of of different works and places of importance within the downtown area as they relate relate to indigenous culture and history. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that uh, the the exhibit at the the museum that first stop because it is it is something to behold and, and it's very important. It has a very important message.
6: So the exhibit at the museum right now is called Shame and Prejudice. Um, it was commissioned by the University of Toronto a couple of years ago when Canada was celebrating 150 years of colonization. And um, so Kent Monkman put together this, uh, it's like a storytelling exhibit, um, and he draws on European art um, techniques and artists to kind of like illustrate the history of resilience of Indigenous peoples in North America, but then also um, the colonization of them. So he examines topics such as incarceration, some of the first um, Indigenous chiefs who were um, incarcerated, such as Poundmaker, and we look at, uh, or he looks at uh, essentially uh, uh, like residential schools, also today, you know, um, becomes Children's Aid Society. So like lots of different um, concepts and things that our people perhaps, uh, like, he basically takes us through a journey of our shared histories and kind of uh, really asks people to look at maybe what they've been told about history or what they understand about history um, through... Maybe a different lens through uh, Indigenous people's lens and through the lens of his Kent Monkman's alter ego, which is Mischief uh, Eagle Testicle.
0: which is so so neat. Like <laughs> just to to have that that name and the and the as you said, like the alter ego. It's it's very interesting and and the idea of using those. Um, uh, classical techniques, it's a cool way of like subverting it, right? Because as you said, it's viewing things through a different lens and, uh, you know, using the medium, I suppose, that is uh, a traditional medium that people will recognize to show uh, an entirely um, different version of, of events. And it is the version that that First Nations and Indigenous people have lived through. And so it's it's taking the familiar, but also introducing something different through it and 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 asking us to view view something that we're not used to, and it's really important. It's it's a, it's great that this exhibit is here, and it's only on until what is it the twenty fifth, I think. And and so this is a great chance for people to come in and really see it.
6: Yeah, definitely. Like uh, we won't be able to during the walks, like go through the whole thing. But definitely some of the things that I talk about, um, you know, as we go through part of the downtown core. Um, You know, I definitely recommend anyone that goes on the walk to come back and check that exhibit out later, and anyone listening just to go check it out, because it is definitely a perspective-flipping exhibit that I think, for a long time, um, the narrative of Canada's history has centered a lot on one specific narrator, and to have Miss Chief um, narrating this particular history, it's not to say that... Um, You know, the way that it's been told before is wrong, but I think that the way history has been told just hasn't necessarily included all good perspectives, I guess you could say.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, and I, I feel like a lot of people of, of my generation, like millennials, as we were growing up, our history classes certainly had that one narrative. And we did not learn about a lot of the things that are, are much more prominent now in uh, news coverage, uh, you know, learning about reconciliation and the the report uh, on, you know, missing and murdered Indigenous Aboriginal women and girls. It's, it's, it's so there's so much more now to process and to understand it, it's really important that we make sure that we're incorporating that into our education system and this is like a great step in that process for people who aren't in school anymore to educate themselves and take an active role uh, to 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 learn about what's gone on
6: yeah definitely I think it's really easy to kind of like look at a lot of our communities and a lot of the issues that our people face and kind of really um, simplify it and make it seem black and white. Um, and there are a lot of, um, like, without having that historical context and without understanding, like, how things got to be the way they are and the impact that um, these traumatic events have had on us. Like, you know, it's, it, it's pretty crazy to think about how, um, you know, up until the 60s, Indigenous people couldn't vote um, and that our ceremonies were illegal so, you know, when people kind of, like, put it on us and say, well, why don't you get over it? Like, why can't you, you know, like, it's in the past. It's kind of like, well, what happened in the past very much defines what's happening with us right now and has impacted us in such a traumatic way that, you know, we, it, we still have our ceremonies and we still have our language. It was, like, attempted to be taken from us. We didn't lose it. Um, And so, you know, you can see by going to an exhibit like that, or even just like going on this walk with me, how like, you know, this history is still here. These people are still here, um, you know. And looking at things from our perspectives, like through our languages, through our stories, um, you might get a better sense uh, of understanding of who we are as a people. And maybe, you know, uh, some of it might challenge some of the misconceptions or the preconceptions that a lot of people have about Indigenous peoples. I guess is what I. Was
0: what I'm trying to say. <laughs> hey, and you're, yeah. you're saying it uh, very, very eloquently, Sarah May. Uh, I, <laughs> you are. <laughs> I, I feel like it's it's also very fitting that the tour uh, ends off at at Losa. Um I, I hope I've, I've said that properly. I apologize if yep. I've mispronounced it. Um, but it, I think that's it's a nice, fitting way to end the tour because you are are taking people through uh, a bit of a historical um, look back and also now looking forward at atlosa to how the community comes together and moving forward and and because it is family healing services at that location many services are offered but that's it's great to kind of bring people up to the end of the tour in the present and say okay this is where we are now and and what we're doing here
6: yeah definitely and atlosa was like a community response like to create like culturally appropriate services for indigenous people whose families have been disrupted by colonization um you know like our our communities were not organized the way that the current government or like that the government of canada has structured for us like with band councils and with um you know like a, uh, a lot of communities uh have really strong matriarchs and they still do um and in leadership and things like that but it, it's just like the european values while they may have worked in europe um, you know, really instilling them on Indigenous peoples here has really disrupted our ability to function as communities in a good way. So, at Losa, is that culturally appropriate response for for those things? And you know, when you think of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and the report that just came out and calling it, it genocide, um, you know, inaction is just as much um, a part of the the process as uh, as as the act itself of genocide. So. Um, you know, like at Lhosa uh, currently has a program uh, for anti-human trafficking, and that's come up in the news a lot lately, and that's kind of coming on a lot of people's radar, but that's that's been on Indigenous communities' radar for, for many, many years, because over 50% of human trafficking victims are Indigenous women, and so you know, right now at LOSA has a really comprehensive approach to, they have a three-strand approach where, with prevention, education, and support for survivors um, called Oka, Oka Denige, which is like She Who Braids. So, you know, what they're doing there is very, um, it, it's very important work, and uh, I definitely think that uh, people should know what they're doing because I think there's a lot of focus on issues that our communities are faced with and not, a lot of focus on what we are doing to like and have always been doing to help each other and help ourselves um grow and heal essentially
0: no i think it's very important and uh it'll be very educational and i hope thought-provoking for for all of the people who are going on the tour which i i hope you have a, a fantastic turnout it's it's 10 bucks That's that's all it costs. That's a that's a bargain for so much learning that you're going to be getting within the span of 90 minutes. And uh, yeah, people can can register through Museum London's website. Uh, That's museumlondon.ca. And that's where they can find more of the information and they can make sure they book their spot to meet Sarah May and go on this tour. Sarah May, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. And uh, I hope everything goes great for you on Saturday. Thank you so much. And I hope to see everyone there. All right, so if you're looking for more information about the walks, you can go to museumlondon.ca forward slash walking dash tours. So that's museumlondon.ca forward slash walking hyphen or dash tours. All right, we need to take a quick break. We will be right back on London Live on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to your Friday afternoon edition of London Live. It's Jess Brady here. I'm your guest host this week. Did you hear about this story having to do with, and it's it's such a ridiculous story, school lunches in a Pennsylvania school district. So apparently there were a lot of families that hadn't paid for their kids' lunches. So much so that the, I guess, outstanding cost or fees amounted to about $22,000. Ugh. There are so many issues as to why this this would have become this case, and like it's, ugh, breaks my heart that that potentially the bulk of these cases are from families who can't afford to pay the fee. Just horrific that that would be the case. So, in response, this is what happened. This is from CNN. And I'll, I'll preface this by saying there's a happy ending to this story. There's, there's a good outcome here. Good-ish, I guess. So this article says, Earlier in July, the, district, the school district had sent about 1,000 letters to parents who owed money for school lunches. You can be sent to dependency court for neglecting your child's right to food. The result may be your child being taken away from your home and placed in foster care. Just terrible. Terrible. So obviously, this sets off quite a lot of uh, concern and panic, for sure. No wonder. Now, there was a businessman uh, from the area, and his name is Todd Carmichael. and He's the co-founder and CEO of La Colombe Coffee in Philadelphia, and he offered to pay the debt in full. Because he himself, as he spoke to media about this, as he was growing up, his family uh, didn't necessarily have a, a lot of cash all the time. And so he had benefited from programs that had provided, let's say, like free school lunches or breakfast or things like that. So he said that he knew what it was like to be hungry and he understood the shame of knowing that you couldn't provide food for your family. So he decided to give back, like no strings attached. He reached out to the school board and the school district also received about, I guess, 100 additional offers from donors all over the country. And at that time, the school board president first refused Carmichael's offer and said that initially that these the demand for payment was it, it was it, yeah like, I don't know, actually, if there was a, a real clear explanation from <laughs> this guy as to why that they were refusing. But Carmichael had said, listen, I don't care. Who can pay? Who cannot? Like, I just want to make sure that this debt is wiped clean and that people aren't, you know, left panicking. So apparently, though, they've reconsidered and accepted shortly thereafter. So Carmichael, the CEO, told CNN through his spokesperson that he expects the funds will be used as intended towards clearing this debt. Now, the school district has since issued an apology. So it's sincerely apologized and for the tone of the letter. It has also decided to accept that generous offer, as we said. It's just, just crazy. It's crazy that this would have even reached this level. I don't understand. You know, it's crazy. So the school board is saying that it followed all federal and state regulations And also in this letter that it sent out, it stated it was not the intention of the district to harm or inconvenience any of the families of our school district. (laughs) Well, I don't know what you expected from a letter like that, like initially to have gone out to threaten people with court action. I mean, obviously debts need to be paid. Like, I mean, the school is paying for lunches. Food has to be purchased. I understand there's a, a, a chain and a ripple effect here. But that type of behavior, that kind of uh, just horrific letter to go out to people. I just come on. I'm really glad that it's been resolved and that they're accepting the donations. But you got to hope that heads are going to roll, you know, administratively about that, that there will be disciplinary action taken. Because that's I don't know how that became that how that got signed off on. It's nuts. Nuts to me. Anyway, that's just my two cents on it. We need to take a break for news. We'll be back on London Live after this on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to London Live. It's Jess Brady here, your guest host for this week. You only have, what, 24 more minutes of me. And then you'll have your weekend and Mike will be back on Monday. It's been a pretty nice day in the Forest City. Just looking outside, though. It's looking a little bit, uh, a little bit cloudy. Some ominous clouds coming into the core. Gotta say, this isn't great. Don't like the look of this. No, looking like dark clouds out there. We're sitting at 23 degrees, feeling like 30 with the humidex. Now, they did say that there was a chance of, uh, showers and possibly thunderstorms this afternoon. So hopefully that doesn't happen, because I have a rehearsal, wedding rehearsal to go to afterwards. We don't want that. We don't want to be rained out. That's no good. No. No, not good. Well, that's that's a potential hazard. But remember, I did say to think of some marriage advice uh, so that I can impart your wisdom to my friends, Sammy and Casey, who are getting married tomorrow. I'm very excited for them. It's going to be a great day. They're two lovely people. I'm very excited. So keep your thinking caps on because I want to hear from you in like a little bit. Don't call yet, but I hope you've been thinking about it. I hope you have because I want to hear from you. But before that, we are going to talk about this other really exciting event that's happening. And it's coming up in, uh, not this next week coming, but the week after. And it's for a really great cause. It's called Save a School. And it's a campaign being run by Good Neighbors Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 very very worthwhile. They're doing some great work. It's uh, you'll hear more about it as I talk with my guest who's who's here with me. Uh, but it's about helping a school in Bangladesh make sure that kids in the community where the school is located can actually keep going to school. And so they're uh, hosting a charity concert, a benefit that's happening on August the eighth, and. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stop myself there and not say any more about it because uh, the person who's going to bring you all of the great details is Tatiana van Utmitsen, and she's in studio with me now. Tatiana, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. It's a pleasure to have you here with us. The
7: pleasure's all mine. Thank you.
0: So you guys are planning a really big event that's coming up. There's some a big name that's involved in it as well. Uh, take us through what this event is and what's happening.
7: Yes. Well, this is going to be an amazing evening. We're very excited. Uh, We're going to have Chad Price play for us uh, with his band. So he's going to play some new music. And this is a very important cause for us. This is for our Save a School campaign. And essentially, we want to make sure we keep 200 kids in school. So we want to give them new books. We want to rebuild the whole school. The school is in desperate need of remodeling. Uh, The kids don't really have material. They just have paper, essentially. So we want to give basic items like notebooks, Pens, pencil, uniforms. We want to cover tuition. Um, some kids live very far from the school, so that's a reason why they don't attend. So we also want to offer transportation for these kids. We want to train the teachers. It, it's a very ambitious Uh, project, and it's very, very dear to our hearts. So uh, if you want to attend our benefit concert on August 8th at 7 p.m., um, and we're going to have some complimentary hors d'oeuvres included in the ticket. The value is $30 for general admission, all in, no extra taxes. Uh, We do have VIP tickets for $40, and then you get a drink on us, and premium seating as well.
0: It sounds like it's going to be a really great night, uh, lots of entertainment and also for a good cause at the same time. Something that always blows my mind, like we are so privileged to live in Canada, where uh, for the most part, access to education is, uh, it's it's not the same as it would be in places like Dhaka, Bangladesh, where this school is located. Uh, it is such a privilege to be where we are and not really have to worry about Uh, Getting to school for the most part or, you know, like certainly there are communities and individuals that are underprivileged right here at home, but we don't face the same barriers that others do around the world. So it's it's probably shocking to a lot of people when they learn about the conditions in places like Bangladesh.
7: Absolutely, and uh, just to give a bit of background as well, we have another campaign, which is the Hope Letter, and every year we send letters to kids in need. So this year was for Mina, she's nine, and she lives in Mirpur, it's the slums of Dhaka in Bangladesh, and she dreams of becoming a teacher, and she can even attend school. She um, suffers, She, she tries to help her family, they share a house with six families, And we started researching about her uh, community. And then we actually decided to create this campaign, Save a School campaign, to help more kids in the area. Because we know that uh, a high problem that they have there is child labor and early marriage. I mean, when you look at the data, it's uh, absurd. And like you said, we we do have issues here as well. But these kids are struggling. The majority of girls, 66%, get married before they're 18. Um kids drop out of school, yeah, they have to work to help their families so um That's why we decided to do this for more kids, not just for this little girl. Um, She's our featured child, but we want to spread and we want to do awareness campaigns as well. Teach the community that kids need to be in school when they want to. You know, when sometimes you're young and you say, oh, I don't want to go to school today. And then these kids actually want to learn and they want to uh, teach other kids. That's one of the things that Mina says. She says, I want to do this because I want to teach kids other things. So I think that's amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like I just th- when you talk about those those stats, especially about young girls, it breaks my heart yeah. because I I again talking about privilege, the privilege that I've had in my life of being able to go to higher education and having the support of my parents to do what what I want to do and follow my dreams. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking that that's not a reality for more children. So it's a great cause that you guys are are, are working on here to to help give more opportunities uh, to all of those children. In in, in that community of of the 200 keeping them keeping them in school because it is oh, it's so important for for other options and, and and making sure that their lives are more fulfilling later on down the road that they have more economic options education is the key to to so many doors it right? Will-
7: Exactly. It unlocks your future, right? It sounds cliche, but it's true. And I think this is a big differential for us at Good Neighbors Canada because uh, a lot of NGOs do amazing campaigns and we uh, try to cover all the bases for families. So it's not just education, it's health, uh, water, sanitation. Uh, we have child sponsorship programs as well. We're in actually seven countries And we help 40 countries. Uh, And the biggest thing for us is to actually help the communities achieve self-reliance. We don't want to just give. We want to give them the tools so they can actually have a sustainable
0: development. Yeah. Then that's that's massive, right? That's giving people agency, and uh, that the age old uh, saying, you know, a hand hand up, not a handout, sort exactly. of a thing, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 making sure that those changes will be permanent and not just fleeting. Yes. which is which is great, and I'm so glad that you got more into the background of of the organization and and talking more about uh, what they do on on the day to day, what you all do on the day to day. So it's fantastic. So to recap, mm-hmm. uh, the big event on August the eighth. Uh, if people are interested in getting tickets, which I hope they very much are interested in doing. <laughs> uh, what should they do? Where can they go for more information on accessing those tickets?
7: Okay, so um, they can buy at the Wolf Performance Hall's box office, which is where our, our event will take place. They can also go to our website or our Instagram. Uh, our handle is HelloGNCanada. So you could just Click the button, it takes you to eventbright.ca. Uh, if you want the long link, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little long. <laughs> GN Canada music for Mirpur.eventbright.ca. And I have something special, actually. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, I uh, like that. We really want everybody to come and learn about this cause, so we're going to do a special online sale this week only.
0: Ooh, okay.
7: Uh, This weekend, Saturday, Sunday, our tickets are going to be half price off.
0: Oh, wow. Yes. Okay.
7: So it's an online sale. The code is flashsale Fifty. So you just type it on Eventbrite and there you go. Perfect. General admission tickets for 50% off.
0: Hey, that's fantastic. That's a deal. And you're also supporting a worthwhile cause. You can't get better than that. Exactly. Perfect. Well, Tatiana, thank you so much for coming in to talk about this uh, fantastic campaign. And we hope that everything goes off flawlessly on August the 8th. Thank you so much.
7: You. We hope so too. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And again, the website, if you're interested in tickets, which I hope you are, is GNCanada.ca. That's all you have to type in. Real easy peasy. And also, uh, Tatiana uh, has mentioned before that they have uh, really cool silent auction items that will be up for grabs on August the 8th, including some Blue Jays tickets, which, I mean, who doesn't like going to the Blue Jays game? Come on. It's a good time. What better way to support a good cause than also getting the chance to win some really cool prizes? So again, gncanada.ca. Go check it out. You can buy tickets through Eventbrite and it is happening on August the 8th. Okay, so like I said before, I wanted you to wait to call in with your marriage advice. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking weddings a little bit. A little bit weddings, but mostly I want to hear from you. I want to hear what your, uh, you know, best advice is to couples who are about to get married, uh, because I have friends who are getting married this weekend. The phone number here is 519-643-2222. That's 519-643-2222. If you're out of town listening to us, 1-866-354-8255. one 866 354 8255. And you can also tweet at me if you like. My handle is at Jess Brady 980 Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back on London Live after these commercials. Jess Brady here behind the mic on this Friday afternoon edition of London Live on 980 CFPL. It's been a good week. It's been a busy week. We've talked to a lot of people. There's been a lot on the go, both on air and you know, off air in our personal lives. Everyone is always very, very busy. Uh, this has been especially a busy week for me, uh, but not as busy as it has been for my friends who are getting married tomorrow. It's very exciting. Very exciting indeed. And they are two just, I've said it before, and they're fantastic folks. And Casey, I've known since we were uh, just little kids at elementary school and here in London. And his beautiful bride-to-be, Sammy, is just a doll. She's wonderful and uh, just, you know, such a, a bright person and lovely and sweet. And they make a fantastic couple with their fur babies, Schroeder and Echo. They're lovely. ARF babies, by the way. Animal Rescue Foundation. So uh, our circle of friends, big supporters of ARF. And uh, ARF comes into the studios quite often for our FM stations as well. They they promo uh, animals that are up for adoption looking for their forever homes. So, yeah, we're all big supporters of ARF. But, yeah, so before the break, I kind of threw this out there for people to call in with their best bit of marriage advice. Same in case you don't know that I'm asking <laughs> for this. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if they hear. Sometimes they listen. Sometimes they tune in. And uh, we'll see. So again, 519-643-2222. 519-643-2222 for local calls. If you're out of town and you're listening and you'd like to give us a pearl of wisdom, marital wisdom, it's 1-866-354-8255. All right. Also on Twitter, you can get me. Jess Brady, 980. Uh, I got a tweet from Andy during the break. (laughs) He said, advice for the groom. You can be right or you can be happy. (laughs) Oh, Andy. (laughs) You know, what if he's not right, though? What if he's not right? (laughs) Casey and I like to debate all the time. So at parties, that generally happens, although not recently, which is good. That's fine. (laughs) Sometimes we really get into it. So, you know. All right, I see we've got a couple of calls on the line. Fantastic. I love this. And it looks like we have Alan first. Hey, Alan, what's your advice? Oh, wrong button. Alan, what's your advice? Or is this Hello? Mark? Mark. Ah, Alan's call dropped. I'm, t- I'm sorry, Mark. How's it going?
6: <laughs> Great. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I-, I asked if you wanted positive advice, happy, <laughs> or re- real advice. Ooh. And uh, um, my advice is to run. Run! I- I would never ever get married in Canada again.
0: Oh dear! Was because, it was it the geography? You said in Canada.
6: Yeah. Well, it, it, the uh, the family court system is so incredibly biased and unfair, and you will sign over the remainder of your life and finances to someone that can leave you on a whim. And I think this all comes from no fault divorce.
0: Hmm. All right. All right. Yep. Well, Mark, I appreciate the. Uh... Yep. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with well I don't want to say pessimistic because it's obviously based on your experiences so you know your 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 perspective I appreciate you calling in is there a smidgen of of positive advice though that you would care to share?
3: Uh, no, I wouldn't. I um I no I've I've been
6: married uh, I've been married a couple of times and uh, no I wouldn't I would never ever do it.
0: All again. right. All right. Well, Mark, I appreciate the call, and um, you have a good rest of your day. I hope your weekend Thank is you. fantastic.
6: Thank you. you Take too. care.
0: Thanks. Okay. Hope Sammy and Casey were not listening to that necessarily, <laughs> but I see that we have Alan on the line. I think this was the call that inadvertently dropped before. Alan, how's it going?
8: How are you? I'm well.
0: I'm good, thanks. What's your What's your uh, piece of advice for the the happy couple?
8: Well, you know, apart from, like, love, trust, respect, telling the truth, all of those things, which we've all heard of a million times, yeah. uh, the one that I wanted to cover was, um, you know, this notion that a relationship is always 50-50 mm-hmm. is wrong. Yeah. It is not. If you expect that, it will inevitably create um, everyone in the relationship keeping score. And that's the last thing you want to be doing. You don't want to get into that mentality where I did something for you, therefore you owe me something else. Mm-hmm. It ebbs and flows. So the most important thing is that, you know, understand it's going to be 70-30 for one person at one point and one stage of your life, and then it's going to, or at least it should, switch to the other person. So one person is making sacrifices to support the goals and aspirations of the other couple or the other partner,
6: mm-hmm.
8: and, it, and it switches over. And, and by doing that, at least you're being more realistic, and you're also in allowing them to be individuals because the last thing you want to do Individuality in the relationship. Be yourself. Have your own life. Because if you're too too much intertwined with your your uh, your partner, then eventually you lose yourself and you start getting, um, I guess, resentful. Mm.
0: I think that's very sage advice, Alan. I very much appreciate that. Lots of good nuggets of wisdom in there. I like it very much, especially the not expecting the 50-50 all the time. I mean, we are all human. We all have good days and bad days, and, and that's why you, the love for each other carries you through and, and you understand each other. I think that's great.
8: Absolutely. Thanks very much.
0: No worries. You take care, eh?
8: You too.
0: Thanks. Bye. Very nice. Wise words from Alan. Very, very good. Okay, next we have Bob. Whoop. Bob, <laughs> what's your What's your pearl of wisdom for the happy couple?
3: Well, I got about 30 years of uh, marriage, the marriage game under my belt here. All right. And uh, I would say communicate, communicate with each other and communicate. And when you're done communicating, communicate some more. Love it you can't you can't have enough of that through because you are definitely going to have bumps in the road everybody's going to have them you're going to have highs and you're going to have lows and another important thing that i found is no matter how incredibly mad life gets which includes things like having children and how busy it gets always take the time for yourselves as mm-hmm. a couple to keep make sure that that flame keeps burning like just make sure you can Kind of isolate yourselves from all from all that from time from time to time. Go on a trip, get to know each other again. Because sometimes over a marriage in thirty years, and when things get crazy and hectic with kids, as everybody out there who's listening who's gone through that knows, you kind of get lost in your relationship a little bit, right? Mm. And if you don't pay attention to that, and you don't bring it home where it started from, then you can lose. You can lose a lot over time, right? Yeah. So yeah, sometimes you got to put things on the back burner and just focus on yourselves. So that's all I can say. I mean, <clears throat> you know, uh, it's. Uh, I guess it's a crapshoot either way. Yeah. It may work out. It may not. But you'll know that as you go. And, you know, when things get tough, you're going to have challenges. Lots of things can come up, whether it be financials or or, <laughs> who knows, illnesses mm-hmm. or anything like that. Uh, that's a really. That's when you really test your relationship. That's when it really gets tested. So uh, you got to keep a stiff upper lip and uh, sail on.
0: Right on. Well, Bob, thank you so much for those uh, words of wisdom. I appreciate them. I think they're they're very well founded. Thanks so much for the call.
3: All right. Have a good weekend.
0: You too. Take care. Bye. Okay, and then our our last caller that we have time for today is Jane. Jane, thanks so much for calling in. Oh, you're welcome. So, what's um, your words of wisdom?
9: I like Bob's statement, and I understand where he's coming from. I've been married forty years in Ooh. September. Congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. And uh, yeah, it is ups and downs, but marriage is number one.
0: Mm-hmm.
9: Actually, God is number one.
0: Okay, and shared faith <laughs> is think. very important. Yeah,
9: and if when things are going haywire and not right, and going down the wrong way, you turn to God, and He will help you, no matter what. Okay. Um, been there through sickness, cried on Him, and, you know, he, uh, I know my voice is getting weak. No, but, no. um that's what got me through. Right and uh, my husband stood back and said, What did you do? And I didn't tell him what I did, but I, I did finally tell him what I did Mm -hmm. and he said wow that's the only way that you got through this I said yeah the only way I got through this yeah so um yeah it was a big health problem that we had Mm -hmm. so you know and whatever you do the stuff doesn't matter what what really matters is the two of you sticking together yeah and the family certainly um yeah it's most important
0: most important wonderful Well, Jane, thank you so much for the call, and again, congratulations on your impending 40th anniversary, which is fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. No worries. Thank you for calling in. Have a great rest of your day.
9: You have a good day, and have a good weekend.
0: Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. There you go. Great advice from some marriage veterans. 30 years, 40 years married. That's some good stuff right there. Talking about, uh, you know, no matter what your belief system is, if you invest in each other, invest time, communicate, like Bob said. Communicate, 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 and then communicate a little bit more. You should be, you'll you'll work through it. That's good. London Live audience, thank you so much for being with me over the last week. Thank you to my producer, Kelly, who has been with me the last few days, and to Matt McInnes, and to Matthew Trevithick, also, who stepped into the breach on Monday to produce for me. Uh, Devin Peacock. Craig